0: Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, ScholarCircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. What are our assumptions about poverty in America? How much of it is just mistaken? In today's program, we explore these assumptions and the realities.
1: Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. The pandemic in the United States has exposed distinct socioeconomic divides throughout the nation but much of the issue of poverty in the US is based on public images rather than empirical evidence. A forthcoming book, Poorly Understood, What Americans Get Wrong About Poverty is inspiring today's show. On today's show, we will explore the myths and facts about poverty in the United States and what a better understanding about the nature and causes of poverty might change public policy preferences. Our panel today is Mark Robert Rank the Herbert S. Hadley Professor of Social Welfare in the George Warren Brown School of Social Work at Washington University in St. Louis. He's the author of Living on the Edge, The Realities of Welfare in America, One Nation, Underprivileged, Why American Poverty Affects Us All, and Chasing the American Dream, Understanding the Dynamics that Shape Our Fortunes with Thomas Herschel. He's also one of the authors of Poorly Understood, along with our second guest, Lawrence Eppert, and Heather Bullock. Lawrence Eppert is assistant professor of sociology at Shippensburg University. He is also one of the authors of Rugged Individualism and the Misunderstanding of American Inequality with Mark Robert Rank and Heather Bullock. And Peter Edelman, who is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Law and Public Policy at Georgetown University's School of Law and the faculty director of the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality. He is the author of Searching for America's Heart, RFK Then the Renewal of Hope, and So Rich, So Poor, Why It's So Hard to End Poverty in America. Thank you all for joining our conversation about poverty. And I'll start with you, Mark Rank. Since your book is about a lot of the myths uh, that persist about poverty in the U.S., start with, what are some of those myths, some of the most persistent and pernicious myths about poverty in the U.S.?
2: Well, Doug, there's many, many myths, and um, I guess the one that we start out with is the myth that um, poverty affects somebody else, and it it doesn't really affect me, that I'm not really going to experience poverty uh, during my lifetime. And what we show uh, from the get-go is that actually a uh, majority of Americans at some point during their lives will experience a year uh, below the poverty line and three quarters of Americans will experience either poverty or near poverty. So this idea that poverty happens to somebody else and not me is, uh, is certainly not the case at all. Um, so that's, that's kind of a first myth that we start out with. Um, there certainly are many others um, that we'll talk about, but um, that's a good one, I think, to begin with.
1: And um, Lawrence Eppert, you know, continuing on that, since a good number of Americans actually will experience poverty at some point, I know one of the myths that, that you highlight is how much poverty is endemic versus kind of episodic. Let's talk about that a bit. Is it that poverty is persisting? among individuals or is it much more common that people will fall into poverty but have the opportunity to lift themselves out?
3: That's actually one of the myths that we tackle. So Mark mentioned this idea that the data clearly shows that a majority of Americans at some point in their lives will experience uh, poverty under the federal threshold, uh, an even larger number will experience near poverty but your second question about um, whether or not people are sort of stuck there, that sort of you know traditional stereotypical idea of the underclass or if people will sort of come and go, um, the latter is actually true. Uh, most people within a year will escape. It's a slight majority but a majority. and a strong majority within two or three years will escape now. Uh, about half of those will re-enter poverty at some point in the near future. Uh, But it's not something that they're sort of locked into. So it's widespread. Most Americans, it will touch most Americans' lives at some point, but it's not something that uh, they can't escape. Most people try very hard and do uh, get above the poverty line. So it's something that affects many of us. But like you said, it is something that um, is escapable, but um, it does persist. And it seems to be a problem that we're not getting rid of anytime soon without some pretty serious uh, policy action.
1: And uh, Peter Edelman, I know you've been working on this issue for quite some time and kind of the way the U.S. has been working with addressing these issues for, for quite some time. Has the nature of poverty evolved or shifted much from at least the periods when, when most of us think of the U.S. taking poverty very seriously, say the 1960s and, and the Warren poverty? Um, has the nature of poverty you know, shifted or is it still pretty similar to what it was like back when... LBJ was, was attempting to address these issues?
0: For one thing, people have uh, views about uh, poverty that go back to probably Adam and Eve, and certainly the uh, Elizabethan time. So in that sense, it's not nothing new, and uh, it's the basic thing of, of some people are okay, and some people are we don't like them. There's something wrong with them, bad people. And uh, there is change. I mean, if you go back to the 30s, let's take an example, elderly people, uh, they were on the bad end of that. Uh, and we have Social Security, and they went to the side, thankfully, to the good people. And uh, disability, lots to do still, but uh, putting in uh, help, both in the 50s and then more in the 70s, uh, that, that supports. There have been two uh, major things that, that happened over the last uh, almost 50 years. Uh, one is uh, manufacturing goes away. Uh, and all those, those uh, jobs that we had at the time, not even needing high school, uh, went away. And, and so the rust Belt, uh, and that's still there the discussion, in fact, that we're having uh, right now about uh, having a, a, a basic level of that we get to, to help people to have a better wage. So that, that's the same argument that we've been having from 1970, and we haven't done a good job on it up to this moment still. Uh, and finally, uh, and of course, we could take a much longer about this, but the other major change is what happened uh, in the 90s, what happened to the law, uh, the national law, about so-called welfare. And it's taken out uh, of that, just pulled it out, so that now uh, we have six million people whose only income is a food stamp, snaps. And so big, big change in the 90s about uh, mothers and children and uh, how awful it is in terms of Deep poverty. Now, to get into the details of why those people, when, when that is pulled out, is a complicated thing. And there are a lot of reasons for it. Uh, some of it structural, some of it not. But it's a big change that took place in 1996.
1: Now, Mark Brank, we're going to talk about poverty. The inevitable question is what do we mean by poverty? Now, you have some statistical uh, data, median incomes. Uh, what constitutes the poverty line. So first, what types of numbers are we talking about when we're calculating percentage of population that's in poverty or, or percentage that will slip into poverty?
2: So, you know, the way that th- there's many ways to think about how to conceptualize and measure poverty, but the way that we do it in this country is we say, if you fall below a certain income level for your household, uh, we're gonna count you in poverty. If you're above that level, you're not gonna be counted as in poverty. So. For 2019, the poverty line for a household of four was around $26,000. So if that household earned um, less than that during the year, they would be counted as in poverty. So if we use that measure for um, 2019, there was about 10.5% of the population that fell into poverty. If we raise it up a bit, we find that about 17 or 18% of the population are either in poverty or near poverty. But again, um, what I would say is that uh, so, you know, a lot of our attention is generally focused on this idea of poverty at a point in time. And, uh, and that tells us something that's important. But it, again, it's also important to think about the longer life course risk that we were talking about earlier. And if you do that, you find, again, that many people will experience poverty. For example, the Census Bureau did a study a few years ago, and they found that during a 36-month 36 36 period, about a third of the entire population experienced two months of poverty. So, we can think about it in various ways, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's the way that we kind of measure it.
1: Yes. And uh, Lawrence, I know one of the more striking elements as far as the myth is, is where uh, the impoverished population is. In the United States, are there areas that are much more
3: likely, you know, to, to be impoverished than other areas? Mark, I think you actually wrote that chapter. Do you mind uh, taking that <laughs> question? Sure. sure. So, so one of
2: the myths that's out there is related to this myth of you know poverty happens to somebody else; it doesn't happen to me. And there's a myth that you know poverty is largely um, a problem of black and brown folks and folks living in inner city central areas. Um, it turns out that about 10 to 15% of everyone in poverty lives in a highly impoverished neighborhood. So in other words, 85% of the population are dispersed out. It turns out that today there are more poor people living in suburban areas than there are in central cities and some of the the most entrenched poverty in the United States is found in rural America. So if you look at Appalachia, or you look at the Deep South, the Mississippi Delta, if you look at American Indian reservations, if you look at the Central Corridor of California, you find some really extreme patterns of uh, poverty. And so again, uh, the way to think about this is that the reach of poverty is really wide it affects a lot of people in a lot of different places. Um, But as Lawrence was pointing out earlier, the grip of poverty is not as strong as we sometimes think that it is.
1: Peter, uh, you had highlighted 1996 as a particularly important point historically for American poverty. So you're referencing Clinton administration's policies, um, what we popularly sort of known as moving from welfare to workfare, some of the the alterations about poverty and government programs. In what ways has this government requirement compelling uh, some form of employment to get government assistance exacerbated poverty issues in the U.S.? If I just
0: uh, say a word about what Mark said, which, of course, I agree with what he said. I am just want to underline a little bit. And that's that in terms of the inner city, we have to put in the word segregation because that's what it is in the United States, and that brings to the word race. Uh, and quite right, Mark said, and, and I absolutely we always have to make sure that people understand that there are more people who are white than there are people who are, uh, now it's disproportionately, but it just did in, in arithmetic. So when we're gonna understand about poverty in the United States, uh, it's absolutely have to have the word race in it. And the, uh, what should I say, uh, slightly odd, even though there's more people, we can't get it. it seem to get across to, to uh, Americans, that there are more people who are poor, who are white. But if we don't call this honestly uh, about race in the country we're not going to have a decent discussion and we're not having that and that relates to uh, the 1996 law because what happened uh, is that whether it was something that was going to be a long uh, stint or a small one the way that set up the states that don't want to be helpful, uh, which is uh, especially in the South, but also Wyoming and Texas and North Carolina and so on. And actually, the first four years when employment was quite available, 96 to 2000, people with kids did pretty well. But the employment that was available, uh, I mean, it's always worse to people of color. You know, it goes back to the first of the conversation here about what do we say about people? What do we think? And the word lazy comes into the discussion. And uh, when you look at, I mean, some of them are in, in rural areas where there just aren't jobs there. And there are a lot of others where it's more complicated than that, but they're still at the bottom of, of the level. And we don't have any childcare. And uh, if a single mom is trying uh, and of course, they have somebody up the street, they have somebody in various ways of making, and so it isn't every last person is out because of no child care. But the whole system is set up so you can't get along. And now remember, I mean, you, you've got all of these people who have only food stamps. Most of them really, really, really want to work, but it's just not there. And you go down to the bureaucrats and say, uh, could I possibly get welfare? It's entirely up to the state. There's nothing in the federal government. It's up to the state if you get it or you don't, just what they, what, what they think about it. And it's turned it into an awful, awful thing. It, in talking about poverty, the worst problem is the deep poverty. Some people will get out, but it is the worst thing, and we just
1: are looking the other way. Listen to the Scholar's Circle. We're discussing poverty in America with Mark Rank of Washington University, Lawrence Eppard of Shippensburg University, and Peter Edelman of Georgetown University. Lawrence, you had a response to this.
3: I just wanted to add something uh, to what Peter said about how if you're going to discuss poverty in the U.S., you can't disconnect it and you can't extricate the issue of race. I just want to underscore that point, which is, and we address this in this book and we've addressed it in a number of other publications, which is, Uh, certainly African-Americans disproportionately experience poverty, but more than that, if you look at the areas of intense segregation that Peter is referencing, that poverty doesn't look like poverty in other places. And that brings to mind the work of people like Patrick Sharkey, Robert Sampson, William Julius Wilson, et cetera. Uh, And some of Sharkey's recent work, for instance, and this is, this number is almost, it's so high that the gap is so large that it's hard to believe. But he's found that 78 percent of african-american children are raised in highly disadvantaged neighborhoods compared to five percent for white so that's not just poverty so just looking at poverty ignores the other dimensions of disadvantage that are piled on top of that in these intensely segregated areas so things like lots of neighbors without social capital um you know low rates of economic you know job growth etc uh failing schools you know environmental burdens so Uh, you know, ignoring that issue of race and the intense segregation in in the literature, it's called concentrated disadvantage. Uh, Poverty is just one dimension that by itself disadvantages folks by itself. And that's a a big enough problem by itself. But in those areas that Peter references, it's paired with multiple other dimensions at the same time that are also disadvantaging and that together create this cumulative effect where what Sharkey says in his work is it's almost impossible to compare Black and white children of similar means at the household level because they're experiencing such intense disadvantage at the neighborhood level. And I'm, I'm not going to get this number right, but something like half of high income black children live in poor neighborhoods in the U.S. And the top 30 percent of income earners. I'm sure we'll address race uh, further in this conversation as well.
1: Yeah, Actually, that was my my next question, talking a little bit more um, in in depth about race, because when we think of the reactions, uh, these accusations about fraud within the system, um, certainly in the 80s, um, Ronald Reagan had emphasized both a racial and a gender component, the so-called welfare queen, and the image that we had of uh, the welfare queen being an African-American woman um, as the most likely recipient of uh, a of assistance. But Mark Frank, what I was thinking about it here was that as I'm reading your book, I realize when you're making these racial, the sort of the racial myth argument, that the 2016 election kind of laid some of that bare. There was a lot of conversation about white, rural, impoverished um you know working poor that who had voted for donald trump and you get things like the hillbilly elegy book that comes out that sort of um that sort of re-emphasizes uh, this and so i guess part of it is is this myth really persistent and how did these discourses in 2016 how is that uh, influencing our understanding of poverty uh, in 2021
2: yeah so um race has been used over and over in this country to divide whites and blacks um, in terms of seeing their common interests. This has been used over and over. And I've got a quote, we have a quote here um, that I think is, you know, just hits this spot on. This is from uh, Lyndon Johnson from 1960. And he was talking to an aide and he said the following, he said, I'll tell you what's at the bottom of it. If you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you picking his pocket Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. And that's exactly what has happened over and over again. That's what Trump tied into. So what Trump was doing was saying, hey, you, you haven't been getting ahead. And that's true. For the last 50 years, median wages for males have been have, have not increased at all once you take into account inflation but he's directed the problem towards the immigrant, folks of color and so on. And again, as I said, race has been used over and over to divide us in terms of this issue. We need to think about poverty as an issue of us, not an issue of them. Yes, Lawrence.
3: Two things. First is to get back to that book, uh, Hillbilly Elegy. I just, I think that's an interesting example that you bring up because It ties so well into our particular book about stereotypes. Uh, I actually wrote a review for that book a few years ago when it came out. And what struck me as really interesting about that book is he spends the entire book talking about how, if not for the grace of God, he would have been doomed, right? Like he had one person in his family, two people, his grandparents, who really saved him from some of the worst things that were happening in, in his community. And he said, I was lucky. He calls himself, I think, a lucky SOB at one point, right? He says, it was luck. That was it. Right. Like I, I should have, you know, I should have met a different fate. And then at the very end of the book turns around and says, my folks need to pick themselves up by their boot, bootstraps, basically. <laughs> so, you know, sort of the, the whole the whole book, I felt like was sort of laying out our case of the structural aspect of this and then turns around and sort of turns on that stereotype of, well, you know, folks need to pick themselves up. The second issue that I wanted to address, in terms of race and in terms of the 2016 election, and I think how it laid bare and really amplified some of the issues of race that we're dealing with now, which is not only do stereotypes make folks more prejudiced, and and you know if you believe that most folks are are lazy, and 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 you you attribute it to one group, that's going to make you have really negative feelings towards that group, but it creates this sort of this double jeopardy because the research is very clear on this, and Martin Gilens has done some classic work on this. I've done my own work on this as well is it makes it harder then to address the problems as well. So it exacerbates them. Folks who, th- who believe in these types of stereotypes are much less likely to support a whole raft of social policies that could actually address these things. So it's damaging in a whole host of ways. I just thought I'd mention that.
2: So, Mark, you wanted to follow up. You know, it's interesting that, um, to follow up on what Lawrence was saying, that research has shown that the more racially heterogeneous a society is, the less generous they are in terms of their safety net. The more homogeneous in terms of race, the more generous they are. So if you look, for example, at the Nordic countries, these countries are very generous in terms of their safety net. A country like the United States is not. So why is that? The argument is that uh, it's harder to feel a connection to people who look different than you and to uh, to be less generous as a result. So I think that's a really it's a really um, important theme throughout. The other thing I was just going to throw out when we're talking about kind of thinking about poverty along the lines of a structural problem, I like this um, particular analogy. And it's the analogy of musical chairs. And what I say is that, you know, if, if we have a game of musical chairs where we have, let's say, 10 players and there are eight chairs, and they circle around, the music stops. Uh, two people are gonna lose out, Well, who loses out? Well, it's somebody who's not as quick, they're in a bad position when the music stops and so on. And we can point to those reasons for why those two individuals lost out. But if we step back and we say, wait a minute, the structure of the game is set up so that two people are gonna lose out, then it really doesn't matter what their characteristics are. And that's what we've been doing in this country. We've been focusing on who loses out at the game Rather than why the game produces losers in the first place, and the game is producing losers because there aren't enough livable wage jobs. We don't have the kind of protections that Peter was talking about in terms of childcare, healthcare, and other issues. So somebody's going to lose out. Well, it's going to be people who are not as adv- have as advantaged um, human capital and things like that to compete, but. Given the structure of the game, we're going to lose out. And so this kind of is a nice transition in thinking about what types of policies and things should we have in terms of addressing poverty. And again, what I would say is let's think about policies that change the structure of the game rather than just
1: those who lose out it. And Peter, you've raised some really powerful issues of race. There's a part of me that wants to unpack the sort of racial differences versus class differences, but you're reminding me, particularly in the United States, um, it's extremely difficult to unpack those questions. And then add a third element here as well that we haven't talked about, which is also immigrant labor, new Americans and how they fall into poverty. So with that in mind, does it make sense to try to unpack the class-based versus race-based, you know, ethnic-based questions, or how much are these so intertwined that we really need to address these issues um, simultaneously?
0: Well, I'd say both. You know, when you talk about poverty, I mean, what what uh, Rankin and Lawrence said uh, is is powerful. Uh, the, the top of the list uh, is the we have never uh, responded to, uh, in terms of, of the white people who are low interest, uh, low income and uh, building up when the Manufacturing, uh, I mean, Appalachia is one thing, and and uh, Rust Belt is another, but they're connected uh, too. And and I mean, it, the the fact that Trump could be elected as president more than any single thing. I mean, there are people all over the country. Is uh, that part of the of the there because uh, it gets all twisted around and and uh, there, uh, nobody ever came to them, if you will. Uh, And uh, as a country, uh, uh, we actually did something uh, that probably wouldn't have happened to either the other, which was to have President Obama because uh, they were sick of the regular politicians. And and, uh, then uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, Mrs. Clinton uh, didn't do very well uh, and so you get this people who had who had voted for Obama turn around and they they vote for Trump uh, and it's really uh, the, the question of the how the economy works and and what was already explained here uh, about the what people uh, think about uh, the world and and uh, they think that any money that's going to help them from government is uh, Speaking, I mean, they do take Medicaid and they, they do to take SAP, but, but just generally, uh, they, they, especially welfare, think that's for black people and they don't want anything to do with it. Uh, and so that's a set of things and that's class and it's race and it's, it's all in there when you ask, ask that question. And then the specific things, you know, uh, it's, it's more than race uh, and class. Uh, I mean, what about disability? Uh, that's a whole separate things uh, that we, we're not doing. We're doing some things better than we did in the past. And the question of immigration, as you raise, that's another thing uh, which which has very complicated. Uh, and, you know, the whole question of, of a green card and how that. How we go with that, and people who don't have a green card, and how we handle that. So you have to deal with that. It's in the play. Uh, it's not all the same thing be, uh, be, be, because it's it's not uh, all the different reasons. And and then uh, when you go back to the early conversation here uh, about the parts the parts of it uh, which are the sort of the combination uh, of race and. Play, uh, in, in, in class uh, are everything's wrong. Uh, and if you're going to have the answer to it, there isn't one answer. Uh, you have to have way better uh, education for for low-income in, people if they have a chance. There has to be a pathway that, that uh, young people can get through and, and get to a job, a job that pays enough with. And, and everything that needs to come together and the question of of safety and community in those in those uh, neighborhoods, and where does that uh, fit into it? Uh, and and you know, uh, I, I just I'm going back to one thing here because your 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 good question about about are there? Uh, I'm I'm saying it's both, but but back on the concentrated uh, poverty, uh, uh, you meant, mentioned that both of you. Uh, very important people. I just add to your list is is Raj Chetty, uh, and and uh, it's so key. That's about place and where do you live. And and I did use the word segregation, and that relates to him, uh, because the, the 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 we now know research that if you can get out of there, and particularly the kids can get out of there, uh, and and. Uh, In their plays, one one of the very uh, interesting uh, pieces uh, is is when there are people there, especially men, have jobs there, uh, African American. uh, It's a different thing for the kids. Uh, I mean, it's just it's not there. There is not choice. People are stuck. Now, some people want to stay there in the community, and we should also be trying to make those schools better, make those those streets. Uh, safe. But choice is so critical, so
1: critical. Mark Rank, in your book, one of the things that really struck me is the discourse about what do we do about poverty usually focuses on programs that cost too much. The argument is always, we need to cut government spending, not, you know not spend more. But you make an argument in the book about the cost of poverty and that there's a real economic case to be made about addressing poverty concerns in the United States. So what is that economic case and how much does poverty cost us?
2: So a couple of years ago, uh, uh, myself and a graduate student here wanted to update a couple of studies that had been done quite a number of years ago. And what we tried to do was estimate what the annual cost of childhood poverty is in the United States. Um, and so what we did is we know that uh, childhood poverty raises the healthcare costs because there's, there's a, a relationship there. It also, as children become adults, they're less economically productive. And there's also a, a, a increased criminal justice costs. So what we did is we used the latest research to factor that all in. And we came up with a number of slightly over $1 trillion on an annual basis. This was in 2015. To put that into perspective, that was about 28% of the entire federal budget for that year. Um, So the, the point is that childhood poverty is extremely expensive. And here's the deal. You can pay for it on the back end, or you can pay for it on the front end. And if you pay for it on the back end, it's always much more expensive to do that. And that's what we're doing in this country. It's not like we're not paying for this. We're paying a tremendous amount. The other thing that we estimated, which is a very um, sort of economic argument, was that for every dollar we spend reducing childhood poverty, we would save between seven and $12 down the road. Now that's just a, a straight economic self-interest argument for why we should be addressing poverty. It's foolish from an economic point of view to do that. The best investment you can make is to invest in children, to invest in their education, to invest in their nutrition. These are things that will pay back a lot down the road. So yes, um, and, and I think that that's an argument that, you know, there certainly are strong moral reasons for why we need to, to pay attention to poverty, but there's also very strong economic reasons.
3: I just want to add something to uh, what Mark said, because it really connects well to what Peter mentioned earlier. Peter says, you know, there are so many different uh, arenas and so many f- different facets of society that have to be fixed in order to solve the overall problem. And this is one area where I think that's uh, perfectly applicable. So uh, and other research has certainly confirmed what Mark's very good research has shown us. Uh, James Heckman's another one who's done research like this. They've actually followed real people over the course of their lives. And they saw compared to a control group, how did high quality interventions into these young children's lives impact their future trajectory? And they showed the same thing that Mark showed with his research, which is a 13% return on investment per year over the course of these children's lives, meaning society's profiting. So society's profiting because there's better economic productivity, educational attainment, less welfare need, less criminality, lower health costs, et cetera. But I want to connect this to something that Peter mentioned, which is this. How do you fix something like that, get really high quality programs in a system where there are political disincentives to thinking long term? Right. So these take major capital investments at at the out front, and you have to wait decades for that to pay off in terms of that societal profit that I'm mentioning. Right. So uh, there have to be other reforms as well that give incentives to our politicians to think beyond two-year cycles, right, or, or four-year or six-year cycles. Uh, but the research is there, right, that if you invest in children, it's always better to do it early on so they have more productive, healthier lives, uh, rather than, as Mark said, pay for the the much more costly things on the back end. It's akin to eating healthy now to save yourself from a $60,000 bypass surgery.
1: We've been focusing on children thus far, Peter. But I also one of the elements the research is showing is how often people who would be you know described as impoverished, even on government assistance, that they work. So I, I think one of the great myths is this that the that impoverished people you know don't work, but the working poor is a population that's growing more and more. Now there's a policy, a proposal on the table as we're having this discussion about raising the minimum wage. How effective is raising the minimum wage to, you know, $15 an hour or or at some point It's a poverty campaign? Well, we should do that.
0: I want to come back to continue uh, the conversation. Terrific. Uh, But the first thing is our politics is awful. And uh, it got better, different president, very different. And we get 50 Senators. We thought we might get 48, 49. We got to 50 with a Vice President. Good, but not good. And that's what you're seeing right now, because uh, you have literally 50 uh, people and one Democrat who says he won't play, or maybe it's two. Uh, And this is obvious that you have to have the minimum wage wage. uh on a on a sliding uh, thing over a few years to get to the 15 dollars but we should get to the 15 dollars uh and it's like in two different worlds you know uh people all over america millions of people who have terrible jobs and they work hard and they should be paid well i mean that's the beginning of what we need to be doing it's absolutely we should be doing it right now So that is very much the the first thing. Now, there's some other things uh, that the president has put out there uh, in terms of help on on the bottom with cash. That's a secondary thing. The first thing is to have jobs because uh, yes, absolutely, we should fix the the minimum wage. You know, it's it's 40% below what it was 50 years ago in real terms. It's terrible, it's just not uh, unacceptable. But uh, it's also true, and this is—it comes back—we can't do this without people understanding what this is and the word jobs, because the whole economic structure uh, in this country went away uh, starting in the '70s and it never got fixed, uh, and that's why people sat down and what we talked about before about uh, whether you're white, whether you're you're black—you've got lousy jobs. And on top of that, the people at the bottom who don't have any cash of sense, And so it's just horrible, especially for moms and their, their kids. But we don't talk and push to get not only jobs for things that we want to do. We are talking about that on the environmental and on the highways and so on. But to have that go to all the way down to, to people, particularly young people as they grow up, so there are jobs to do as part of these things, and uh, jobs in childcare, uh, getting uh, housing. There's a whole bunch of things, but we need the politics that go with that because it costs money to do that. The fact is, as Mark says, uh, it, it's a plus to do this. We actually come out of having good jobs that we pay for through through the taxes. But overall, uh, it's better for the entire United States. That discussion, other than in pieces here and there, but really as a a whole uh, strategy of all these areas, these are things that we need to have done. We're not not talking about one job that somebody's making it up. These are real things that we need to do. They should be for a proper wage. And we don't have that uh, discussion going on in the country. And it really has to. Over a period of time, Mark Frank,
2: you
1: want to respond to
2: that? Yeah, I wanted to just throw in a couple things off of what um, Peter was saying. I mean, uh, you know, President Biden says, and I think that this is exactly right, um, that if you work full time in this country, you shouldn't be in poverty. It's 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 a moral issue. Um, It's just it's just wrong. It's un-American. So that's one thing. The other thing that's interesting that we haven't talked at all about here is inequality. And inequality, as you know, over the last 50 years has been getting wider and wider. The reason I'm bringing that up is I have a colleague here who's done some research on this. And what he's shown is that actually, as inequality gets wider, it's a drag on our economic productivity. We are less productive as an economy when we have greater inequality. And that's what's going on, and that's what's continued throughout all these different administrations during the last 50 years. So that's a whole nother issue that we should think about, not only because it's morally wrong to have these wide differences that we see, but it's also economically not a smart way to go. So that's just another thing I wanted to throw out.
3: And Lawrence, you to respond as well. I wanted to make a point about, um, Peter was talking about jobs. And we were talking earlier, you were talking about the white working class in their reaction in terms of the 2016 election. And folks that, that talk to me, and they know that I've done work on stratification beliefs, uh, one of the first questions they always ask me is the old question of, why do folks vote against their interests? And I, I think this is a really important question. And I think it connects to what Peter's talking about in terms of jobs, which is, uh, people may not have the same interests that you think they have, which is some people put status over, you know, making a little bit more through, through, you know, direct government payments or whatever the case may be. And Arlie Hochschild wrote a book, Strangers in Their Own Land. And she really hit on this, which is that people want dignity, right? People want jobs and I'm not against, you know, massive welfare programs. I'm not, I'm not against the UBI. I'm not against a whole host of things, but uh, if you want to sell a lot of these programs, I think it has to be about dignity and really bringing real opportunities back to communities you know, not, not just trying to sort of throw money at the problem. I'm not against that, for sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of these folks hold status, at least in terms of the folks she's talking to in Louisiana and a variety of other, you know, really rural areas. It's that status. It's that dignity they hold is more important than maybe making two or three more dollars an hour, you know, through uh, a government program.
2: Well, and I, I, I just jump in and, and say again that what we're talking about here is the structure of the game. We need to focus on the structure of the game instead of those who are losing out at the
0: game. And that's dignity and it's J.OB. Good <laughs>
1: jobs.. Yes. You're, you're listening to Scholar Circle, and we're discussing poverty in America and the way to approach changing the structures of poverty in America with Mark Rank, Lawrence Eppard and Peter Edelman. Now, Mark, one aspect of this book that I, I, again, find very fascinating and familiar with this idea, it is expensive to be poor in America. Basic sort of fundamental uh, economic activity um, costs more when you're poor. And there's one specific area that, that I'm particularly interested in, and that's the unbanked a population that if you're not able to qualify for a checking account or for some sort of a savings account then you end up having to go to places like the payday lenders or or you know the, the check cashing places etc and one of the proposals has been to try to create some sort of a bank maybe even the use of the the, the federal reserve bank that would allow basically any account regardless of, uh, of your economic status, and bank in the U.S. to try to address the unbanked population. I guess sort of two questions. Number one, is that the best way to think about this question? And I don't know if you actually have done any research or any thinking about maybe the use of the federal bank as a way to give people banking privileges someplace so they don't have to pay, you know, payday lenders and, and uh, cash checking places.
0: Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio, has a bill on that. Just uh, people should should uh, know that, and and he's uh, th- talked it uh, through uh, exactly that. Uh, and and so people should uh, look for that. Um, I just wanted to put that into the conversation. It's a live idea, a, a a bill. Mark, what you're pointing out, Doug, is 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 this irony that it's. It's
2: expensive to be poor. Um, You know, you get the best rates financially if you have a lot of money. Um, And so if you look at, you know, where people live, if they're living in impoverished areas, there's food deserts, it costs more to get, you know, good food and transportation and all that kind of thing. So um, I think, yeah, it's a really interesting idea. The other thing that we talk about in the book that's somewhat related to this is that we need to think about poverty strategies in terms of building folks' assets, that a lot of our concern is focused on income, rightly so, and getting income into, into people's hands through good jobs and so on. But we also need to think about those things, the long-term things to get, that get people ahead in their lives like being able to save for a college education or for starting a business or whatever. And we have some of those policies for middle and upper income folks. So folks are able to deduct their home mortgage interest and and build their asset in the home. But we don't have those policies for low income folks. And that's a much more longer term strategy that I think is connected to what you're talking about.
1: And Lawrence, one thing that comes to mind with me is since so much of the myth busting that the book uh, wrestles with is the ability, a larger percentage of the population could potentially become impoverished. The thing that I think across the board, except for perhaps the very wealthy, are most concerned about with respect to uh, becoming impoverished are healthcare crises. The concern that somebody will get sick, you end up going in debt, never being able to get out of that debt. First of all, how much should that be the focus and sort of shifting the way that we think about healthcare as really, you know, more about insurance against poverty, as opposed to the way that we tend to think of healthcare, which is insurance against, you know, against getting sick.
3: Well, and this the study is a few years old and I haven't certainly followed up on it. But I mean the the last time that I read about this, it was the leading cause of personal bankruptcy in the US. Uh, what's interesting about your your question about, um, and again, it, it connects to what Peter was saying about fixing the, the multifaceted approach. So, you know, fixing healthcare prices, et cetera. One of the interesting things about the healthcare debate when it comes to issues of inequality, when it comes to issues of poverty is unlike so many other programs that you're gonna to have to put money into now. Now, you may you can make an argument that you're gonna make a, a profit economically and society's gonna make a profit later on, but like it's, go, it's going to cost you more money now, just in real terms. Healthcare is an example where that's not the case. Healthcare is an example where if we could truly reform the system, we could be paying less for a better system that covers everybody, right? So uh, in the UK, for instance, they pay uh, less than half of what the US pays per capita, and their, their quality is as good as ours. I think they wait longer for elective surgeries, right? But I mean, for everything else, they're doing just fine. So um, yes, I mean, in terms of um, personal bankruptcies, absolutely, healthcare and medical bills are, are a big part of that. I just find it interesting because of all the issues we're talking about, having to make a strong argument to Congress who are on these sort of two-year cycles and, and want to think about things in terms of immediate gain, that's one area, healthcare, where we could save a lot of money. I mean, we spend about as much... Uh, I was listening to T.R. Reid and Cynthia Cox from the Kaiser Family Foundation talk about this recently. Uh, uh, Cynthia says, we, we've spent about as much on our public programs today, just Medicare and Medicaid, as many other countries spend overall for all of their healthcare <laughs> administration. So uh, it's bizarre. It's one of those places we can actually save money and save people from bankruptcies, as you mentioned.
1: Absolutely. And Peter, you had made a couple of references in it. And certainly the pandemic has introduced Americans to a concept that's a bit more popular in Europe than it is in the US of universal basic income. You know, Andrew Yang highlighted it in the 2020 campaign, but we all kind of experienced what UBI would be with stimulus. Payments during the um, during the pandemic. How much promise does that hold? Some version of universal basic income as a way to at least ensure the safety net is there, that people aren't falling, you know, below the safety nets.
0: It depends what what you mean by UBI. And the fact is, if you look at what people are writing uh, about it, I mean, you know, I like to have that discussion out there, but. There are a lot of people who don't understand what we're talking about here. Uh, We need to have a bottom that's there for everybody. I mean, you know, even Nixon wanted that, and then he figured it out that he made a mistake (laughs) from his point of view. Uh, But we, you know, it's a negative income. That's that's the same thing. Well, it's not quite the same thing because that. The idea of that is you have something at the bottom, but it goes away as your income goes up, whereas the UBI goes to everybody. And uh, you have to stop and think, well, do we really have the money if we go through all the way that? Now, okay, we'll take it back from the richest uh, people, and that'll work uh, in an arithmetic way, but what's the politics uh, of money that that goes out and then it's taken away from it? And a lot of people were talking about the UBI uh, like it's some kind of magic thing. And you know, what about, we just had a conversation here about jobs. How many people who talk about UBIs talk about the fact that the jobs are are actually the most uh, important? We've got to have that, but we do have to have that. And you know, the UBI, it, there has to be that discussion. It's so important to get it right, something, whatever the name of it is. And it's going on right now in Congress. And I, you know, part of me says, do it quietly. But um, we, we have a bill there on, on the child tax uh, benefit, which would get that uh, down to zero for people, uh, for all of families with children's and uh, the result of that is of about 40 percent of kids uh, and their families uh, get out of poverty and it's right there r- right now I mean we we have a bill uh it's called the American Family Care Act and uh, it's Michael Bennett and Sharon Brown and in, in the Senate and uh Rosa DeLora in the, in the house and Susan Delben who's from the state of Washington. Um, and uh, it's in on the short run for the $1.9 trillion, uh, effort uh, on right now that we hope will go through. And in terms of uh, what the numbers were before uh, we went in, into but now, but uh, last year or the year before, there were 170 people in the House that are in favor of it. They signed on it, and 40 senators for that. Now, I understand that you have to get to them, but there's great interest in that. It's totally sensible. And secondly, uh, he has, uh, Brown has a bill on uh, the earned income tax credit, uh, which is for workers, which adds uh, uh Getting more money, except doesn't get it under the current law to get it for people who don't have kids they have a little amount. But those two bills, which are just totally sensible, are quite possible to go uh, right now in this in this four years, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the thing to be talking about, uh, and not just the UBI.
3: And uh, Lawrence, you want uh, you want to respond. Uh, I'll just say really quickly uh, to Peter's point about being totally sensible, Uh, if you look around the wealthy world, look at the countries that have low child poverty, it's not a mystery as to why they get money to families that have children. It works. We've only got a couple minutes left. So Mark, I'm going to ask you the last question.
1: So the last point with the book is that the U.S. uh, in comparison to other advanced industrial democracies is really not doing well in anti-poverty campaigns. Any sort of final thoughts as to why the US seems to be doing you know, more poorly than say their European counterparts?
2: Yeah, I think um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is um, we often view poverty through the lens of race. And as I mentioned, research has shown that you know, in a racially heterogeneous society, folks tend to be less generous. But I think there's another reason um, that we haven't really talked upon and I'll just mention quickly is that, and and Lawrence and I and and Heather wrote a book on this last year, Um, America has been steeped in this idea of rugged individualism. It's the idea that you do it on your own, you're self-reliant, you don't turn to the government for help. Um, And that's been a theme throughout our country's history. And if you look at why are we an outlier in terms of childcare, healthcare, uh, safety nets, all of these kinds of things. I think a lot of it has to do with this this belief that um, you know that we are rugged individuals and that we don't you know we don't turn to others for help and we don't turn to the government for help. So I think that that's um, that's another important reason for why um, the United States is such an outlier. Because as you said, the U.S. is at the very high end both in terms of inequality and in terms of poverty.
3: About a minute left, Lawrence. I'm going to give you the last word. I'll just say one thing, which is, you know, Mark mentioned more heterogeneous societies uh, tend to have be less generous. I just want to make one uh, point, which is researchers have shown that ethnocentrism being sort of, you know, suspicious of outgroups is natural. But who those outgroups are is social. We construct those groups as outgroups. This book is one part of a larger project of saying, you know what, we're a lot more similar than you think. And so we should do a lot more to help all of us.
1: A great thought to end our conversation. I want to thank our panel for addressing some of the myths, some of the misperceptions uh, of the issues on poverty in the U.S. The book we've been discussing is called Poorly Understood, and its authors are Mark Rank, Lawrence Eppard, and Heather Bullock. Mark Rank is the Herbert S. Hadley Professor of Social Welfare in the George Warren Brown School of Social Work at Washington University in St. Louis. Lawrence Eppert is Assistant Professor of Sociology at Shippensburg University. And Peter Edelman is the Karmic Waterhouse Professor of Law and Public Policy at Georgetown University School of Law and the Faculty Director of the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you to our guests and to you for listening. The Scholar's Circle team includes Doug Becker and Lillian Ng, contributing hosts, Ankine Agassian and Melissa Chiprin, managing producers, Sud Dongre, our webmaster, Tim Page and Mike Hurst, engineers and technical support. I'm Maria Armudian, and we'll see you next week.